Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk with Andrew Beer, managing member at Dynamic Beta Investments. Andrew's firm seeks to replicate hedge fund strategies through liquid vehicles like ETFs and provides these strategies to investors at low fee levels. His managed future ETF is actually one of the fastest growing ETFs this year. We talked to Andrew about his hedge fund replication process, both for managed futures and long short equity and about hedge funds in general. And towards the end of the discussion, we talk about Buffett's evolution as an investor. We get Andrew's thoughts on value investing and how it's changed over the years and much more. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Dynamic Beta's Andrew Beer. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So um, we wanted to have you on to talk about a number of things, I guess, hedge fund related. Um, but to start, I think we'll spend maybe a couple minutes just getting sort of a lay of the land, sort of understanding um, the hedge fund landscape based on your experience in the in that area. I think we and our listeners can learn a lot from you. But then I think we'll spend probably most of the time talking about um, what you're doing at uh, Dynamic Beta in terms of building hedge fund-like, I guess, investment strategies, but doing them through liquid vehicles like ETFs. Um, and one of the very cool things, um, I think it's a good time to have you on, because one of the things that uh, somebody shared on Twitter is I think your Managed Futures ETF is um, the fastest growing ETF this year and also now the largest alternative ETF in the space. So congratulations to you on you know a successful uh, investment strategy with that. Thank you. It has been a very, very long time coming. So we can, we, my, my friends relentlessly mock me for this 15 year overnight success story, but uh, better, better late than never. Well, it, listen, staying around and staying in the game. And when you have a strategy that, that, you know, a little bit of it is luck, a lot of it's hard work and perseverance. So, um, you know, we're certainly happy for you and, and the partners that you're uh, involved with on that ETF. Thank you. So to start, we just would maybe kind of start at a high level. If you could kind of give us, um, I guess, the lay on the land when it comes to the current hedge fund industry, um, maybe walk us through what the major categories of hedge funds that are out there. And then, you know, you've been doing this for uh, a, a while now. So how maybe has it changed in your mind for the good or the bad? Sure. So, so I, I got into the hedge fund industry in 1994 totally by accident. Um, I, I thought I was going to go into the private equity world. I love the idea of looking at companies and, you know, trying to figure out which ones to buy and and how to make them better. Um, and then I, in my second year of business school, I, one of my professors said I should meet this guy named Seth Klarman. He was doing really interesting things, and I went for an interview. And and you know, he and some guys he worked with basically beat the crap out of me for a while. And I thought. They were super smart, and, and, and I don't know. I thought it, was, it seemed like these guys were incredibly smart and had, you know, were looking at these really interesting things. And uh, so I went into the hedge fund industry really not knowing what it was. Um, it, it was very much a cottage industry back then. Um, you know, that I, when I joined Valpost, I think we, they had about 600 million in assets under management. You know, fast forward, uh, uh, you know, 15 years later, they had 20, 30 billion in assets. Um, and so, and Valpost was a very big hedge fund at the time. And so what hedge funds were doing back then was, you know, a lot of the things we take for granted 
when we look at investments today, the things we can buy, the existence of ETFs to get access to things that just didn't exist back then. Um, even things like bank loans didn't trade. I mean, I did some early bank loan trades and you'd have to have like find lawyers and do special agreements for them. I did some of the first um, secondary purchases of limited partnership interests. And again, I mean, this was all being made up on the go. So, you know, the story since then, the nearly 30 years, is about institutionalization. You know, it's about a, it going from a business where you had uh, really well-connected family offices who, you know, would, would, it was a lot of word of mouth that was hearing about, um, you know, people, Seth never had to raise a penny because there was always some group of really rich guys would get together and say, you know, the smartest guy I'm running, you know, all of, or part of my portfolio is this guy, Seth. And somebody would say, who? And then, you know, lo and behold, they would give him all of their money after they met him. Um, so, you know, so what's happened since then has been, has been really this, this cottage industry has now become huge. And I think one of the questions you guys um, gave me a heads up about was exactly how big the industry is. And nobody really knows. Like a lot of people try to calculate it and how you actually define hedge funds. Um, but, but, you know, the investor base has changed. It's become very institutionalized. Um, guys who used to do one thing one year and completely switch what they would do and do something else the next year, you know, I mean, strategy drift used to be a great thing. You know, of course you drift strategies when you, when you can find a new way to make money. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. But with institutionalization, you know, if you're the tech equity long short guy, it's very, very hard to wake up in the beginning of 2021 and say, we've had an incredible 15 years doing what we're doing. Uh, the party's over, it's time to go buy railroad stocks. Um, so so it's, it's both you know, created um, uh, opportunities, but it has also has, 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 has brought along with it a lot of the compartmentalization, the specialization uh, that you see in, in, in other parts of asset management. You know, when, when I think about the hedge funds that I know, it tends to be, I think, probably the ones that have the most assets under management. I mean, that's where you think of Bridgewater or maybe Renaissance with their track record. Um, but then Balpost um, or Greenlight Capital. But generally, I mean, do you know, do as hedge funds as a group, like collectively, <coughs> are they adding value after fees? I mean, hedge funds are known to be charging, you know, more, more than the expensive side. So, I mean, how is the performance of the hedge fund universe, would you say? Yeah, so so I think you have to look at it in different periods. So so when, when I think of hedge funds and when I think of what I like about hedge funds, and I try to think about things in relatively simple terms, um, 2000 through 2007, we call it the golden age of hedge funds. Right? So hedge funds go into the dot-com crisis. They're actually long equities. Right? They've got a beta of around 0.3. And yet equities go down 50% and they preserve capital, make a little bit of money. And, and then the dust settles and you know bricks become a thing. Everybody is kind of getting back into... Um, uh, making money and taking risk, and they're making money again. And so, so to me, that was the original promise of hedge funds. They, they, they preserve capital, they make money, a little bit of money, in a, in a grinding bear market because they have the flexibility to get off the track when the train's coming. You know, they don't necessarily see it all the way down the track and hop off gingerly and calmly wait for it to pass, but, but you know, you're pretty evident when, you, when the ground is shaking and as it has been this year, um, uh, and, and, you know, and the thunder is roaring, it's time, time to get off. Um, then, you know, back to this point about institutionalization, what happens in then when you look at hedge funds broadly is, uh, is, is they kind of go down frustratingly much on average when the market goes down. So 2008, um, instead of preserving capital, they went down half as much as the equity markets, which you're really not supposed to do when one of the two words in your, in your, in your, in your brand is hedge. 
And so, and then you have gatings and suspensions and oh my God, they're frauds and fund of funds who were promising people could, they could get out monthly and then all of a sudden people can't get out. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a horrible, horrible couple of years for hedge funds. And, and, but coming out of it, um, you know, despite that, because of the performance was so good in those earlier years, hedge funds became an asset class. And, and so in the 2010s, um, you know, when interest rates went down very low, in my view, just fees overall were way too high. You know, you should, it, it, it just does not make sense to give somebody money, give them 20%, have them basically buy a series of large cap stocks that you can buy yourself, pay them 20% of profits every year, you know, particularly in years when they go up, pay them high management fees, and then have them grow their assets tenfold so they're not even buying the really cool, interesting stocks that they were buying when you first met them. Um, and so, you know, I, I, think, I think the challenge has been, you know, with institutionalization uh, is that, is that in, by, by and large, fees didn't come down as much as they should have. And so one of the first things, you know, when I was decided to talk about this more broadly was I wrote an editorial in the Financial Times in 2016 that basically said, yeah, 80% of hedge fund alpha is getting paid away. It's a really, really bad deal. That being said, you know, and we can talk about it more, the issue of hedge fund fees is complicated. There are some hedge funds that are worth absolutely every penny and, and, and they charge staggering amounts and, and, uh, and they're doing something that's very magical, but they're very few and far between. And it's, it's, and it's awfully hard to figure out who, who they are in advance. I had I had heard, and I forget, I think it might have been a podcast. Well, I don't know who it was with, but the whole idea of the two and twenty fee fee structure came out of like the late nineteen seventies when entrepreneurial investment managers were trying to get started, and it the idea was you know give these guys the twenty percent until they got established the twenty percent of profits until they got established um, to allow. Them to get off off the ground, and then it sort of like rolled into the eighties. Obviously, you could go back to the Buffett original Buffett partnership with his fee structure, but I think it kind of got more popular in the late seventies. And then the performance like was so good after the late seventies and the eighties. Some of these guys like Joel Greenblatt and the maybe the original sort of hedge fund guys were able to continue to, to substantiate um, those fees. Um, I don't know if that's if the, I don't know if you know anything. If that, <clears throat> Yeah, well, it, I mean, it, it was a, it was a cottage industry, right? And you and, and and everybody was a gunslinger, right? So so people were were basically so the typical hedge fund startup around the time that I started was a guy who was a very very good stock picker at a place like Fidelity. You know, he's he's in his late twenties or early thirties. He's making five hundred thousand or a million dollars a year. He's doing really 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 well, and but he wants to go out on his own. Right. And so there was no established seeding business. And so you would go kind of hat in hand to family and friends. And let's say you raised $20 million, you know, and that was, that was considered to be kind of a large launch. The $400,000 you get on your management fee was designed to pay expenses. You know, you can, you can hire a guy, you know, we don't want you focused on, we don't want you worried about uh, printing business cards and even doing trade execution confirmation, hire a guy to do that. You'd hire a guy to do that. Maybe you get a small office. Um, back then, they had these things called hedge fund hotels. So you could actually go to your prime broker, and they would give you office space and you know conference rooms and things you could work off of. But you were supposed to. You, it was basically eat what you kill, you know. You, and that's in the twenty percent. It, it wasn't twenty percent over anything because there were no benchmarks, right? It was just. I mean, when I joined Bellpost, um, uh, you know, they were very very involved in buying uh, non-performing loan portfolios out of the RTC. That was. What, one of the things they grilled me on uh, in, in my interview 
uh, buying Russian privatization vouchers at one one hundredth the price. I mean, you 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 wanted these guys to find the weirdest, most off the run things they could find, um, because you could do the other stuff yourself if you were a big family office. And so so the the, the two percent was really designed to keep the lights on and give you enough infrastructure so you could concentrate on making money and then you'd make money on that. And the fact that 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 it didn't change over time that you have a twenty billion dollar fund at two and twenty is just a it's it's a perversion. Of the of the concept, I mean alignment of incentives. You got to be kidding me, right? I mean it's this, and so what happened was as the industry got really big, the two percent actually becomes once you become really profitable, the two percent is a lot more profitable than the twenty percent, because if you can keep that two percent alive for the next ten or fifteen years, I mean that's where the multiples people would put on that, just from a valuation perspective, were more than double what you get on the other side. So a lot of the criticism of hedge funds became they get really big. They kind of dial back their risk because they don't want to be the guy with a ten billion dollar hedge fund that disappears at the end of the year, and and so they would dial back their risk so they couldn't make a ton of money, and then but and then and they would live off the twenty percent off the off the two percent management fee, um, and you know and so I've look I've been talking about this for fifteen years. There's tremendous talent in hedge fund managers, and there's some things that are there's there's in some ways a great revival. In what's happened over the past couple of years, because you get a, you mentioned Bridgewater as one of the funds. I mean, who thought Bridgewater went through a long, long, long winter of low returns, and then they come roaring back this year, exactly when you need it. And you know, you've got these guys there who are, who are investing tens upon tens of billions of dollars, and are up thirty percent or some staggering amount. Like that's great. Like that's sort of that's that's what you want people to be doing, not. You know, not 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 promising you a steady four or five net of fees. Yeah, and I mean, are there have the fees base have have institutions pressured these hedge funds on the fees? Though, I mean, are they getting compressed? I mean, in the asset management business with ETFs and everything, you know, there's certainly pressure on fees. So, what about in the hedge fund world? So, so yes and no, right? So there are some hedge funds that are raising fees. You mentioned Renaissance, right? I mean, Renaissance can charge whatever they want. Just, and, and just give them all your money and go home, right? Because I, I don't know what they're doing, but they're magicians. Um, uh, you know, a firm like uh, like Millennium, you know, charges. They even expense all their their um, uh, you know the cost of all these pods back to their investors. They're hundreds. I mean, some people said like a thousand basis points um, at Millennium, but they're also you know they're doing something very very different. They're taking a dollar of investor capital and turning it into ten and not blowing up, right? And if you can do that and you just earn 200 basis points on each of those dollars that you're invested and charge half 10% per annum, your clients are still getting 10% with no correlation to anything. As an allocator, that is, I mean, that's an astonishingly valuable thing to get. Um, but broadly across the industry, you know, the, the capital still chases guys who did well. And, and those guys have all the negotiating leverage. Um, you know, at one point, somebody, there's an article <laughs> that, where somebody said, there's gonna be huge demand for hedge funds and fees are gonna come down. And, and Cliff Asnes pops up, as he always does, and says, yeah, and that would be the very first time in history you would have a huge <laughs> surge in demand, to, you know, combined with commoditization at the, at the exact moment. So, you know, so I think, I think the allocation, in general, 1% um, of allocators have pricing power with hedge funds. You know, you're a sovereign wealth fund, and you've got $25 billion to go into hedge funds. You can walk into a hedge fund, and you're not going to pay 2 and 20 Almost everybody else is going to pay two and twenty, and in general, it's too much. Well, that's helpful. I think that's a good sort of initial overview here, quick overview of the hedge fund industry. Let's get into some of your stuff. So, um, can you talk to what 
liquid alts are and how interest and investment in liquid alts has grown over time? So, um, so liquid alts simplistically are people who take hedge fund strategies um, and, and try to drop them into a mutual fund so they can be sold to retail investors. Essentially, that's, that's the, you know, and now they do it with ETFs, but the ETF market is a, is a spec compared to the mutual fund market. Uh, they also do the same thing in Europe in something called a usage fund. Um, uh, the space, and so it, it really came into um, uh, existence post GFC. And it's being driven, and it's always been driven by the growth of, 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 of more complex and model portfolios. And, and to take a step back, the asset management industry is an extraordinarily unusual industry in that we have Vanguard. Right? There is no major industry out there where one of the market leaders is a nonprofit. Right? They price things at zero. And if they could charge less than zero, they would. Right? It is, imagine if Microsoft decided to get back all their profits tomorrow, or, I mean, it just, it is, it's, 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 it creates all these very, very weird distortions. And so post GFC, um, you know, you'd had both, you'd had this kind of period where everything had really gone down and, and, and what people were basically, what a lot of advisors were saying is, well, we've got to compete with Vanguard. Vanguard is not just offering their funds for free. Now they're offering models for free. 60, 40 portfolios, and then, and then robo-advisors are going to pop up, and they're going to do it for 25 basis points. Then people are offering model portfolios. So there's been this, this, what, there's been this, this bifurcation in the world where you've got guys who are, let's just do everything for as cheaply as we can and simply as we can, and guys who are saying, yeah, but that's limiting. And, and we want to bring, you know, there are things that are valuable. Maybe they cost more, but, you know, we think it's going to help our clients have a smoother ride. It's going to protect them in a year like this. And so, um, so there was this kind of wave of demand where people said, we want things that are different outside of stocks and bonds. And the, the problem is, um, uh, and, and it was really based on what had happened with institutions. You know, 50 years ago, a pension plan might have had a really simple portfolio of stocks and bonds. Now today you walk in, it's got 25 different asset classes, sometimes dozens of investments per asset class. It's been, it's been an inexorable for short complexity. Um, in the retail world, the liquid alts world, though, I think has been just a, an incredible embarrassment from a product development perspective, that, that you have a space that took in hundreds of billions of dollars of capital, and depending upon whether you look at, you know, the Wilshire Index or somebody who tracks this stuff, it's done between 1.5% and 2% per annum for 10 years, and the fees have been more than that during a raging bull market in stocks and bonds. And, and they tend to go down frustratingly at exactly the wrong time. And, and I, so I've written a lot about that, but basically most hedge fund strategies should not be put into mutual funds. You go back to, you know, you, you back to, go back to killing the structure and its flexibility, that takes it to an absolute extreme. And so um, I think, you know, the, the other problem is that very, very few, maybe less than 5% of liquid alternative funds actually add diversification value to a 60-40 portfolio on a standalone basis. Incredibly few. Why is that? Because the idiosyncratic risk, the dispersion between guys in a space, the unpredictability of the returns, it's like saying, you know, I'm a huge believer in the value factor and I'm buying that regional bank and put making a 10% allocation in my model portfolio because it's a because it's 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 trading at a discount to book. Right? It's not, you know, a single stock is not a factor. It, or a strategy. And, and that's, that's, so literally you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these products, which are all car parts. 
and somebody has to assemble them in, into a car. But in the retail world, and you know, I'm not sure, I don't know exactly how you guys manage money, but in the retail world, if I said, hey, there's this great area of managed futures and you, know, you should put 5% of your assets into it, but my God, you've got to pick six or seven guys within that 5% allocation to get reasonable diversification, most people wouldn't do it. So, so the story of the liquid alts world is A, they took strategies that worked in hedge funds, tried to jam into mutual funds that didn't work for the most part. And B, the products that were offered were designed for an institutional investor who could buy 10 funds in a particular area and get diversification. And so anyway, we're trying to change that. That's been my, um, it's taken a long time to kind of convince people of this, but, but when I started talking about this 10 years ago, people thought, I was just kind of ruining the party. <laughs> it's like, it was too much fun creating this stuff and selling it. And, and now I think there are enough people with Molly-sized hangovers that they're, that they're a little more receptive to what we're saying. Picking up on this idea that most hedge fund products shouldn't be run you know, in liquid products, um, I'm thinking this probably is sort of how you, you analyzed it when you decided what, what to launch, but what are the types of hedge fund strategies that do work the best like in liquid products? So the thing that works the best is replication. Well, and let me let me and let me focus on the ETF side, okay? Because the because there there are things like in the managed future space where we have it's our you know where our flagship ETF is. AQR has a great managed futures fund mutual fund that went through a long period. Man AHL does something with American Beacon, Alpha Simplex. I mean, these are great credible firms that have great institutional products and have and have brought their strategies to the mutual fund world. So that actually works quite well. Problem when you, is when you take that and say, do you want to do it in an ETF? Right? I don't see any of these guys saying that we are perfectly happy to, sh to show every day to everybody exactly what our positions are in the futures market. Because even if they had a billion dollars in an ETF and they've got $10 billion sitting behind it over here, it's too, um, you know, they're, they, they can be too significant a player in smaller markets. Um, and so, so when I talk about liquid alts and the growth of it, um, uh, there are, there, there's been almost nothing of quality in the ETF world. And so we didn't come at this saying, hey, we've got these cool strategies, let's figure out, you know, maybe we can put them into an ETF or mutual fund and then more people will buy it. We came at it saying, what, do, what does an allocator in the ETF world need? And, and what we think they need is going back to, it, it is not, the guy who did best last year, right? And yet you can buy it in an ETF. What we think they need is something index-like, like something that is like, if you could just give a little bit of money to every guy in the space, like if you could give every, every little bit of money to everybody in the S&P 500, you give a little bit of money to everybody in the space, then you get an asset class, a strategy. It's not the single, it's not the single uh, manager anymore. And, and that the, way, the only way we found to do that, and maybe somebody will come up with a better way tomorrow, the only way we, 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 do, we, we found to do that is you basically say, let's look at those guys and study them, and then try to figure out what are their big trades? You know, are they long or short crude oil and by how much? Well, then we can copy it in an ETF. We can copy their big trades in an ETF, and, and we're happy to have everybody see it every day. There's no risk of being front run. There's no risk of, of, of proprietary stuff. So, so our, our approach was very, very, we came at it from a completely different direction. Um, uh, and, and I think it works better. So when you, when you talk about sort of replication, um, you know, one of, one of the things you'll see a lot of people try to do when, when they replicate any kind of great investment manager is that they'll look at the 13F filings and, and they'll just say, you know, what do they hold? I want to hold that. So when you're talking about replication, are you talking about that? Or are you talking about something more complicated than that? 
So, so we looked a lot. So there, there are three different kinds of replication, right? One, which are, they're called replication. I argue that only one of them is, is really replication. So one you mentioned is this 13F. Bill Ackman owns these stocks. Let's just buy those stocks. You know, and that was a very, very, there was a big wave of that in the mid-2010s. Interestingly, from guys who were already invested with a guy like Bill Ackman. You mentioned Greenlight. You know, they would say, "Why?" family officers would say, I've got $25 million with this guy and I'm paying one and a half and 20. He's got six stocks that matter, right? Why, I'll, let's, I'll leave 10 because I love the guy and I want to talk to him. I want to hear about, you know, I want to read his letters and stuff, but I'll take 15 and just buy those stocks, right? So there was this huge single stock copycat position and by and large turned out to be a terrible idea. And it was a terrible idea because um, uh, this was during a period of time when single stock hedge fund trades were starting to get really crowded. So you do that in mid-2015, and the two biggest stocks that popped out were Valiant and Sun Edison, both of which went subsequently went to zero. So if you do that and you don't have hedges in place and you don't really know the businesses, it, it, it basically, you, you ended up with a strategy that Yes, you had the same stocks that they would own, except for the fact that they would go down a lot more at the wrong time. Um, so that that is a business is sort of single stock position has largely gone away. A second wave was a lot of very, very talented quants said, we think the real drivers of what hedge funds do are things like currency carry and, and commodity backwardation and these kind of like very, very standard trades. And these were not just betas, they were alternative betas. They're alternative risk premia. Another disaster, right? These, these, these were designed to be things that could give you a sharp ratio of one over time with no correlation to anything. And then the, very soon after they launched a lot of flagship products by great firms went down 30 or 40%. Like it's the equivalent of a stock picker picking four frauds and saying, I, sorry, I, you know, I, 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 when I looked back, I would, thought I was gonna pick the good companies, I picked the bad ones. Um, what we do is something different. It's been around for about 15 years, it's called factor replication. And factor replication is basically, the underlying idea is that with a portfolio of hedge funds, it's always the big trades. And, and so, you know, in managed futures, you've got all of these incredibly smart hedge funds who have their own models trying to figure out is gold gonna go up or down and how should we size it? You know, is oil gonna go up or down? What about, what about the yen? And, you know, that, that whether they make money is gonna be driven by a handful of positions, five, maybe 10 positions over the course of, of a year, over the course of even, we think even of a decade. And so we have models, but what the models do is instead of trying to figure out whether these things are gonna go up, go up or down, we try to figure out whether they think they're gonna go up or down. <laughs> we, and, it's, and it's basically a risk model. It's like if you guys were saying, you know, we wanna include this fund, but we wanna see how it behaves versus these different asset classes, what our risk models do is basically, um, you know, pull apart their recent, just reported performance, pull apart their recent, to, in order to infer how they have these positions. And it happens much, again, as I'm a non-quant, I've been doing it for 15 years, it happens to work just better than anything else that we found. Yeah, so the idea is instead of looking at what they're holding, we're sort of looking at their performance and trying to figure out what's driving that performance and that can tell us effectively what their positioning is. Is that the idea? Exactly. So somebody comes to the mutual fund and we say, we're gonna play a game. I'm not gonna tell you what they do. You know, it's not gonna take you long to figure out whether it's a bond fund or a stock fund. You know, oh, it's got a 98% correlation to EM and zero, you know, in low correlation to the NASDAQ. My guess is they've got some EM exposure. So, so it's, you do the same thing with hedge funds, but it's more complicated. It's, you know, you do it on multiple dimensions at the same time. And thank God I have great quant partners who can do this stuff because uh, 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 it's, it's above my mathematical and statistical uh, uh, pay grade. 
You talk about managed futures, just for listeners who aren't familiar with it, can you just talk about kind of what managed futures are and sort of like what, what the return stream of a managed futures strategy typically looks like? So, so managed futures is a strategy that's been around forever and, you know, it's been around for 50 years or something. And I think we are still trying to come up with a single sentence that resonates with everybody. So, so what, what you basically, what it's basically is it's a computer driven strategy where people are looking for trends and, and, and they're looking at recent history. So it's almost like technical analysis where you're looking at the, you know, interest rates and how they've been moving. Are they likely to keep moving up? Um, and so some people call it momentum. Some people call it trend. Uh, but but the basic idea is that you know we humans drive a lot of things that go on in the markets. We're very emotional. We don't respond to things quickly. We can overreact, etc. And these cold rational machines can can weather a year like this. Um, now the return profile of managed futures is, I think it is it it, it is absolutely utterly obvious as an asset allocation in a broader portfolio. And the reason being that, you know, it has zero correlation to stocks and bonds over time, although they will go up or down, but it's hit the trifecta. It made a lot of money during the dot-com crisis. It made a lot of money during the GFC, and it's up 35% this year before fees. So, so there, there is no other strategy that I'm aware of from a diversification perspective where you say, I'm starting with 60-40, and I want to peel off 10 and put it into something. I think this should be everyone's first port of call. The problem is that, that, that actually getting to those great statistical benefits has been particularly complicated and there have been a lot of landmines in it. And so when we decided to get into the space, it was really to come at it from a completely different angle. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, to, to your point, basically, if you, if you look at a lot of the things that worked as hedges, you know, in 2000, that worked in 2008, a lot of them are just collapsing now. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of the things people would use to try to hedge a portfolio are not working and managed futures is one that has consistently worked throughout. And, you know, those, those are very hard to find. Well, and I think, I think you're going to get to, I've been using this. I mean, I'm, I've become sort of a, look, and again, I'm not, you can tell I'm not a managed futures guy, right? I've been doing this since we got into the space in 2015 because I wanted those statistical benefits without the headaches. And, and I think we found, we've, I think we've probably built the best mousetrap to get that. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's, it's, the, the, the strategies have done incredibly well this year because they weren't tied to the super bubble, right? So everybody, everybody that I know had a bet on the super bubble in some fashion. You had, you know, you own the S&P 500 because you just wanted to buy the S&P 500 for free. Well, it turns out you actually had a ton of exposure to tech stocks, which, you know, which, which were the valuations of which were based on low interest rates forever. Uh, well, you had to put someone in, so you put it in bonds at 2%. Well, what else are you going to do? You know, cash was earning zero. You might as well put it in bonds at 2%. So I think, I think the, you know, the, the whole investing community had all these bets tied to the regime. And then in early 2021, when Stan Druckenmiller made, I think, probably, you know, one of the great macro calls of the past 20 years, where he basically said, like, guys, I think inflation's coming back. Um, the great thing about managed futures is they may have had a pro-super bubble view in 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 2019 and 2020 and but as soon as prices started to change as soon as you saw signs of inflation they just changed you know and 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 it's that that sort of nimbleness and flexibility has allowed them to make 35 percent this year really on different elements of the inflation trade and looking at hedge funds that run managed future strategies i would assume there's a lot of you know variation in terms of the futures markets that they access how did you think about that sort of when setting up yours in terms of which futures markets you wanted to be involved in and which ones you didn't so, so they will, um, so one of those guys will tell you that, that we are woefully under diversified. 
that that you know we trade oil but we don't trade natural gas you know we don't trade jet fuel we don't trade all these other things uh we have gold we don't have palladium we don't have silver we don't have all these other other things um i th my personal so when we looked at it in 2015 that was a question right because we can't do what we do with 65 instruments it's just there are statistical barriers to doing it so it's got to be a simple portfolio we only use 10 big instruments and and they're deep liquid markets in commodities rates equities and currencies things like dollar yen but not things like you know dollar south african rand or vice versa um the um so when I spoke to people who'd been allocators in the space, who'd been giving these guys money, and they're really, really smart, and they and really drilled down, they said, yeah, it, it's always the big trades, right? You, you're, these big hedge funds are not going to say, we, had, we were up 35% in, in, uh, in 2022. Thank you, pork bellies. You know, it's just, it's not, it's not big enough, right? <laughs> you know, Bridgewater is not going to tell you, you know, and we killed it on our microcap stocks this year, right? It's just, it's so... Um, so that for us, so what we do is basically try to boil it down to, to our best estimate of their very biggest trades. And, and we, the, the crazy thing is we think actually their biggest trades is where all the value is. You know, it's, it's where it's, you know, to get inflation, even, even once, I mean, I always, cause I always try to kind of bring this back into human beings. Cause I can't think the way these models think. Yeah. When Stan Druck, when Tony Pascarelli, who's the head of um, uh, prime brokerage at Goldman Sachs, asks Stan Druck and Miller when he makes the inflation call, he says, you know, well, what are you doing about it? He didn't tell you like he's, you know, he's arbitraging the 29 year bond versus the, the 30 year bond and and picking up, sweeping up bips here and there. He's like, I'm shorting treasuries and buying commodities. Like, like it's not like, I mean, hedge funds love the simple trade. You know, that's the thing is like, you know, starting my career with, with for Seth Klarman, if I walked in and said, Seth, I have this incredibly complicated way to buy a dollar for 50 cents or a super easy way to buy it for 60, we'll, we'll do as much of the 60 cent opportunity as we can and then add in some of the others to it. It's just, it's, it's you know, it's, it's about making money. And so I think in, in the managed future space, I think the way they make money is getting the big trades right. Yeah, I think that's something I've learned like throughout my career. You know, as a quant, we have this tendency to want to like dig into these minute details and, and spend all this time in there. And you know, it's really about just getting the big things right. And if you get the big things right, you'll be okay. And 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 not and, and it's very easy to be fooled by by numbers. So I, I was incredibly lucky, right? This could have there there are a lot of people who've been in our space who have um who have or quants in our space who get entranced with statistical stuff. You know, that, that there have been this kind of wave of people saying, oh, you're, you're using a quadratic optimization? Oh, oh, you poor fool. Let me show you my Kalman filter, right? <laughs> like it's, it's, and so, so there is this, this, you know, because why do you become one of these guys? Because you love it, right? It's the, it's the coolest stuff in the car. It's the gadgets, it's the features, it's better. It's the engineering stuff. And my two partners who, who, um, you know, my, 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 my co-managing member of the business guy, you know, we've been comrade in arms in this for, for 15 years at this point. And our third partner, who's the former math professor, um, they, they always think about it from outcomes. Like, how do we, how do we get it as close as we can in the most efficient way and not screwed up? And, and, and the best, very, very, very best outcome for us is having a model that works well enough that you don't tinker with it. And, and that's when we talk to allocators of what we do, they're stunned that we don't change the models a lot because they're that's the pitch that they're used to hearing, you know, that, that, uh, oh, well, you know, yes, well, we had a rough period in, in, in that month, and, but then we recalibrated everything. We tuned this, we did that, et cetera, and, and that'll never happen again. And what happens is you often 
create more problems doing that than not. So, you know, it, keep, keep it simple and, and, and efficient and, 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 and robust. We don't run managed future strategies, but we do run a lot of strategies that tend to be very different than a 60-40 portfolio. And, you know, one of the challenges, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, you run into with that is these strategies make complete sense, like in a portfolio context. But you go in these periods where the market's just running up, you know, and these strategies are, are inevitably going to trail during those periods. And I'm wondering how, what you think in terms of the best ways to maybe coach investors around that, because, you know, it can be it can be a big challenge, you know, during those periods where they're not working to sort of explain these big benefits you're going to get like in years like this. All right, so I, I think I think one of the great developments in the wealth management world is to focus on model portfolios. Right? And that's and, and it, it is focusing on the overall portfolio level solution. It's a little bit like, like, look, you can see our numbers every day and what we do, right? I wish we could smooth our returns, you know, and just show you our numbers quarterly. And, and, and even better if we're like a private equity firm and mark them wherever we want when things are, when things are going against us, right? That would be, but, but you can see it every day and that psychologically is difficult. You know, you see, you, you know, we, we go through a bad day or two and people want to, want to talk about it. I think, I think the, the great thing about these strategies, you're right, they fit as part of an integrated package. And how, how you get clients to look at the outcome of the integrated package, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not in a position where I have to do that. But I think that is, I think part of the reason the markets have been so calm this year, relatively speaking, that we haven't had people going in crazy and rushing for the exits is because we've had a post GFC 12, 13 year education around this. You know, you come in, my guess is you guys don't go in and say, uh, you know, I'm going to educate you on each of these 20 different line items. It's about the package and how to get and help them retire where they are. And hopefully they trust you as the steward to make those decisions. And, and, um, but, you know, I guess what I would always try to do is just try to always bring it back to the integrated whole. You had an interesting appearance on our, our friend Corey Hofstein's podcast. You know, he has, he has an interesting concept around this, this idea of return stacking. You know, the idea of maybe, free, you know, using leverage to free up some space you know, with their 60-40 portfolio to, to invest in something like managed futures. So that that in some ways could be a good way to, to manage behavior because you are sort of getting your 60-40 perform, performance and you're kind of putting this on top of it. Corey's awesome. I mean, Corey's, Corey's brilliant. And I think his, his, his return stacking ideas is, is really, really interesting, particularly in, in a lower return world. I mean, the interesting thing is like, you know, so we run an ETF, we're not capital efficient, right? I mean, if we, if we were doing this for a pension plan, they would... You know, give us a certain portion of capital. They would manage a bond portfolio. They do something. We do it on top. Um, you know, so I, there are people who've asked us to do two X ver versions of what we do to make it more capital efficient. We, we are we are very very focused on 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 just the ETF world and and that ETF model world. And to us, they actually don't want capital efficiency. They want they want predictability. They want something that if managed futures as an asset class is up. Um, uh, you know, is up five. And by cutting out some fees and expenses over that same period of time, we're up seven or eight. That's all they want. Because that also, because not underperforming the benchmark, consistently outperforming the benchmark is also how you remain invested in the strategy for, for during those longer winters. That, that makes complete sense. You know, and there are products out there that do that 60-40 part of it. And you can sort of couple those products with ETFs that do the managed futures kind of to create the same, to, to create something around that idea. Um, I want to switch and talk about your other strategy you run because uh, long short equity is really interesting to me. How do you think long short equity investors should think about that when incorporating it into a portfolio? So long short equity is is defensive equity allocation with hopefully a bit of alpha stacked on top. 
Um, it's not a standalone orthogonal completely, you know, it's not like managed futures, right? Managed futures has no correlation and it goes up in a year like this. What you want in a managed futures portfolio is for it to go down a lot less than equity markets in a year like this. And, but particularly in a lower return period, you want it to, um, uh, to do well. So here's how I think about the math of managed futures. Um, if let's say we think equities are going to do 6% a year for the next decade. And they're going to do that with a lot of ups and downs over that period of time. But we get to the end of the end, end, of, the, end of the next um, uh, end of ten years, they've done six percent per annum. The starting risk level, these strategies on average, I'm not talking about market neutral. I'm talking about you know kind of a combination is going to have about half the risk of the equity markets, a beta of around 0.5. So they're going to make if they do nothing terribly well, they're going to make three over that period of time. But the big driver in equity long short, their big driver of their returns over time are factor rotations. It's getting value right at the right time. It's getting growth right at the right time. It's dialing down equity risk. It's, it's going into EM during the brick wave. It's these big factor rotations, which often comes from security selection, but it's not the same, because you mentioned 13Fs. One of the problems with 13Fs, they're all US companies, right? You're not doing 13Fs on the China A shares market. So it's a very US centric strategy. At some point, I just don't believe that EM is going to underperform the S&P 500 for the next 20 years, <laughs> the next 10 years, like at some point it's going to come back. So what you're going to see is you're going to see hedge funds rotate into areas that do better than the broader equity market. So if they do 200 basis points of alpha and you haven't paid too much for that, then instead of getting three, you'll get five when equities do six. So you'll get three quarters of the returns of the equity markets over a cycle with half the risk. It's an incremental win. But it's, a, it's, it's valuable, again, as you say, as part of a, and you're right, it has to be part of an overall portfolio. Because if it's on a standalone basis, the one year when the S&P does triple, what equity long short does, everyone's going to throw up their hands and say it's a failure. And so are you doing that sort of in the same way you're doing managed futures? You're kind of looking at the returns of these funds, and then you're trying to say, here are the bets they're making based on those returns? Absolutely. And, and think, think about it. It's, it's very, you know, in managed futures, managed futures, um, they move their portfolios around pretty fast. So we're looking at, you know, the last three or four weeks of data, and then we're adjusting every week. Equity long short, they actually move really slowly. And so we're just looking at monthly data for about 40 large hedge funds. And and again, there's some guys in there, going back to the point about institutionalization, like there are tech guys in there who are going to be long tech stocks no matter what happens. You know, there's some value guys who will be long value stocks. But what we're really looking for is at the margin. You know, the guys who aren't bucketed like that, maybe, um, you know, the... Are they shifting their exposures? Are they moving from larger cap to smaller cap, from U.S. to international, from EM to to to, and you know when and in and it works incredibly well. Like that's that's basically where kind of the the long term returns are of the strategy. Whereas single funds can be wildly different. You said you follow the largest funds. Do you do you think it's worth doing anything where you would say like try to look at the manager's performance and you know only only follow the best performing funds or something like that? Is do you think any strategies like that add add any value? Uh, well, it wouldn't add value if we did it because I don't know, <laughs> I don't know who's going to do well. So, so, um, it, it's very, um, I don't think anyone has figured out a way to tell which hedge funds are going to do well. Um, I, so I, we, I, and I, I know with absolute certainty that we have not. Um, so one, you know, running thing I say is if you'd asked me at the end of 2019 to, to put a dollar into one hedge fund, the one hedge fund I would have picked would have been Renaissance's institutional equity fund that immediately went down 20% the next year and then went down 10% in, in, in the following January. Of course, it came roaring back. 
right? If you ask professional allocators where they would have done it at the same time, they would have said structured credit. And these guys walked face first into the propeller of COVID and went down 50%, you know, within a matter of months. So um, I think the, the what, what, what happens is when you try to select the guys who've only done well, um, you end up introducing all sorts of biases into the data because it's not going to continue. So let's say I just picked up all the guys who did, who did well last year. The model's going to say, oh my God, they all must have been tremendously long equities. Let's dial up our equity risk going to January. And, and you would have been flattened by it. Uh, one of our competitors that did in, in 2007, Deutsche Bank launched their own replication product around the same time that I got into the business. And they said, we're only going to launch, we're only going to replicate funds with a sharp ratio of greater than 2.5. Okay. That meant every mortgage backed securities fund, like the moment it was like, they, they launched it like the month before the Bear Stearns funds blew up and they immediately went down and people said replication doesn't work. It's like, no, it's not replication doesn't work. You've got to know what you're replicating. The thing, the thing about us is what we're known for is also all the things we don't try to replicate. For years, people would say, can you replicate Bridgewater Pure Alpha? No. Okay. Now they say, can you replicate Millennium? No. <laughs> can, you know, can you replicate oh, these distressed debt guys? I'm tied up my money and you know, I'm not going to get my money back. Can you replicate? No, I can't replicate them. So, so it, it's, you know, in, in 15 years, we've looked at every different kind of liquid alt strategy. And, and we've only done three really, really simple replication products because it, this is something that sort of goes back to learning at the knee of a guy like Seth Klarbin is don't do stuff just to do it. You know, if we're going to launch a, if we're going to launch a strategy, we got to be 80% confident we can outperform the actual hedge funds with low fees, liquidity, and better drawdown characteristics. And so that means you say no to an awful lot of things. Just one more for me before I hand it back to Justin. You mentioned this idea that a lot of these liquid alts products are not delivering what you think they might be delivering. And I'm just wondering from the perspective of an investor who might be listening to this, like what are some of the red flags? What are some, some of the things people should look for in a liquid alts product to say, you know, maybe this is not a product that's doing what I think it should be doing? It, it's very, very, very difficult for people who are not in the business to evaluate these products for the following reasons. Um, most people in the space launch a lot of products. So they might have 12 products out there and they only show up with the two that are working. Right. So, so one of the questions that I've coached people to ask is, okay, if you guys think these products are so great, can you show me every product you've launched in the past 10 years and how they've done? Right. Is because one of our competitors in Europe has a product that's doing great. Okay. The three products before it did terribly. And so, so the, 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 what, what Morningstar those would call this is so a guy named Ben Johnson at Morningstar had this great expression, the spaghetti cannon, right? They shoot as much at the wall and see what sticks. And, but you only hear about the ones, right? It's, it's designed to make you think that they are, you know, we're, we're so smart. We, we're only showing up with a, with a thing that's worked. Where in reality, you should view that very skeptically. I mean, think about the names who have done really, really badly in this space. The, I mean, you know, you just read the paper, read a magazine or whatever, in terms of like some of the best hedge fund managers have really, really struggled doing this stuff. Um, so one thing, so one thing is we call it selection bias, right? And so Morningstar also did great research where they basically said, chasing the guy who did well last year destroyed every dollar you otherwise would have made. Because, because, and it also sets for an advisor, it sets up unrealistic expectations because you sit down with a client and you say, we want to diversify with this guy and, and he's been doing 10% per annum for the past five years. And so the client thinks, oh my God, he's a magician. 
right? It's like he can, he can, and, and yet then he goes to a really, really bad period. And the client's saying like, I thought he was doing 10% per annum. How come he's all of a sudden down 20? And so, so I think, I think it's, it, it's very, very difficult if you're not in the space to have that kind of scope and, and history to sell the different products. Because once, once a product is doing badly, they don't talk about it and they wait for it to quietly die. Um, the other thing, the other thing is, is diversification. And, and it's very, very hard to get in wealth management portfolios. You've got to have a bunch of these things. Do you got to put together the pieces of a car? You need pros for that, right? So you need guys like you who understand the space. You need guys like uh, the Corey Hofsteins of the world, the the you know others who who who, who do this stuff for a living. I just don't. I, I, I don't think that there's a. It, it's something where an average investor can can understand some of the nuances um, uh, that, that create certain risks that won't, won't, won't show up until the wrong moment. Just one point of clarification on the uh, long short strategy. Are you using 13Fs there? No, we just used um, the returns data on hedge funds. So, so yeah, yeah. So we, it's, like, it's like we create our own index of hedge funds. And again, we're picking the biggest guys. They're diversified across lots of different strategies. It's, it's almost like, it's almost like we almost create like our, the S&P 500, and then we analyze just the data on it. And, and the, the metaphor is that it's almost like, because we're always looking backwards, but when is looking backwards, when is the information valuable? Well, if you have a tanker in the water and you're trying to figure out where that tanker is going, you can analyze the wake behind it and you can tell big things about it. I can't tell you the name of the guy who's driving the boat. I can't tell you the number of crew members. I can't tell you what's in the cargo. But I can tell you how fast it's moving, how deep it's sitting in the water. I can tell you it's turning north or south, accelerating or decelerating. It's those big, big, big trends. So we just look back over roughly the past year, figure out the big trends and how they're changing. And fortunately, my partners are very good at this. So they can tell you that, you know, well, if you were just looking at the data in the first half of that period, it wouldn't tell you much. But look at these recent changes and, and, and how to kind of distill as much information as possible. Um, and so what we do is basically make our own estimate of, of the estimates of all those features, we invest in it only through futures contracts. That's really, really important in ETF land because it means we're, our portfolio is extremely efficient and liquid. Um, and then we wait another, we wait a month and do it again. So big shifts, you know, have they been dialing down equity risk? Yes. Have they had hedges on, uh, is some inflation hedges in place and were those going up this year? Yes. You get those things right, you know, and you're down mid single digits, you're not down 25. Which again, you're not up, but it's pretty heroic for an equity substitute this year. Yeah, have you I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to think back like you could I, I don't know if anything like really jumped I mean, you just gave a couple examples, but like, I don't know, big shift towards energy. Or I don't know, in 2020, when we went from like, you know, down 35%. And then on March 23rd, we bottomed and then it was off to the races. I mean, your your strategies are probably dynamic enough to you're not going to be necessarily in at the bottom, you need to see the shift happen, but ultimately it'll sniff it out in the return data. And then you guys will pivot, you know, and start allocating and investing into that area. Right. So, so one thing I would just say, the reason we, we, we target a large pool of funds is because they're more predictable, right? If, if, if in that period before March 23rd, as you said, everybody had cut risk, right? All 40 funds that we look at had cut risk in two weeks. We wouldn't see it, right? I mean, we would, we would, we would, whatever, we would have been great because the market came back and we would have still had our equity risk on. But the reality is, you know how these guys think, 
right? There, there's some guy out there who thinks COVID is a you know is is a nightmare, lockdowns, what's happening, you know, start selling, start reducing risk, put on hedges. Um, I mean, Bill Ackman put on some insane like you know bond hedge and made two and a half billion dollars off of nothing. Um, uh, but there are other guys who are buying it. Right. I mean, you love that stock, right? You've had that stock for two years and, you know, and two months ago you were buying it at hundred. Now you can buy it at 75. There are other people who are going to be backing up the truck on that because they're not going to believe oh, lockdowns aren't going to occur like that. I mean, it's so, so, so there's always the mix in the underlying pool. What we saw in 2020 was two things. It was really interesting. The first was that after March coming out of it, so it all happened so fast, nobody had time to do risk or really change their positions. Um, but then we saw equity risk going up. And so for somebody looking at these models and reading and talking to a lot of people, it was fascinating to me because what I realized was that, um, and by the way, I don't, we don't override the models, but I spend a lot of time trying to interpret what we're seeing in the models and the positioning. Does it line up with what I'm hearing from allocators, family offices, you know, reading in Brian Progridge reports, investor letters. And hedge funds believed pretty early on that we were going to have a, a, a vaccine, that we're going to come out of it. Every hedge fund worth its salt had epidemiologists on staff educating themselves about what was going to happen. They had a general view that there had never been a there had never been a disease in history where all of mankind lined up with all the resources, technology, and manpower to try to solve it as, as they would. So it was going to it was there was they didn't know when it was going to be it was going to come. Plus, you had the Fed and the federal government basically standing they were standing behind everything. So they were dialing up equity risk, but how they were dialing it up equity equity risk was the most interesting. It wasn't going back into tech stocks. And it was in fact going into, and the way we see it in futures world is not going into, is like going into small cap stocks. Well, small cap and value overlap, overlap a lot more than NASDAQ, which wasn't going up, obviously. Um, so, so we see it going into these kind of like, like uh, developed market uh, um, equities outside the US, um, uh, even some, some EM. And it took me a little while to figure it out, but I realized what was happening was that a lot of hedge funds, the most popular hedge funds positions going into COVID were FANGs, tech stocks, things like that. And these guys starting in the 2010s had decided that these were the best companies they'd ever seen, right? And it goes back to what Buffett said about, you know, with Google, it's like somebody invented a cash register in San Francisco and every time anybody anywhere went online, the cash register rang, right? And so, so they looked at, you know, the Apple ecosystem, which hedge funds started to love around 2012, maybe, 2013, uh, Microsoft, all these companies. But these companies have become such big parts of their portfolios, and they did what nobody expected, which is they outperformed in the next bear market. Everybody thought, everybody thought once, oh, value is doing terribly, value is doing terribly. But once there's a bear market, you're going to love value. But then we had this crazy bear market where the value guys got killed because they were all the old industrial companies and everybody was going to stay at home. And, and, and so all that, all these stocks went up. So what did it mean? You're a guy who, you know, bought, uh, Google and it was a, you know, kind of built up to an 8% position. And then it gradually, it did even better. It was outperforming everything. It got up to a 12% position. So it's a huge position for you. And then you go through COVID and the other stuff you have has gone down more. Now it's a 15% position or an 18% position. So people are actually dialing back their exposure, they weren't getting rid of it, right? So we didn't see the NASDAQ go down to zero. We saw the NASDAQ kind of stay flat. And they were taking money from that and saying, on on, on average, and you know, on the margin and saying, yeah, I don't think that, you know, that uh, bank that's trading at 60% of book 
is going out of business or, or that, uh, you know, I think people are going to go back and watch movies at some point, or I think people are going to get back on, on cruise ships and th that stuff is all down 90%. So, so we can actually see the value shift and those two moves, adding risk before in anticipation of further market gains. And then, um, so market timing thing, and then the shift into value, which then did much, much better over the next year was like 600 basis points of alpha. And so back to your question about equity long short, is you know there is no strategy where you can say oh um, this year um, you know on an average year uh, our, our per annum alpha is going to be between 190 and 210 basis points. It's not. It's going to be you know it's it's zero three negative two twelve <laughs> like you know it's like it's, it's just the question does it does it average out over time? And and that was so interesting because everyone had kind of given up on equity long short, and they made a couple of moves that added a huge amount of value over the next twelve months. So, so we, we, we see it like that. And when people invest with us, they often want to hear kind of what we're seeing in terms of, you know, how, how we're interpreting what, what we're seeing. But it's, it's, it, it's a lot of it is an, an interpretive exercise. Yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah, I think it's important to try to tie back and think about, you know, what drove it um, and, you know, what trends in the market were, were behind that. I, I actually am interested based on this sort of this idea of how they're positioned. Like, are there any interesting things you're seeing right now in, in terms of how hedge funds are positioned that might you know tell us sort of what they're doing in this current market? Unless a hedge fund had a white knuckle grip on something like stock, like like tech, right, where they couldn't change what they were doing, hedge funds nailed the inflation trade. And and so what we see in equity long short and on the other side is still a very very big inflation bet. It's and that it doesn't you know there's no future on CPI, so you end up using you know your short treasuries, your long the U.S. dollar are kind of the, the, the big trades. Um, I think, you know, broadly in terms of the view on hedge funds is they're very negative, like as negative as I've seen them in a very, very long time. They think the issues that we have that have piled up um, are very, very serious and are going to take years and years to play out. And that, you know, this unwind of, I, I, I share this view. I think when we look back at the 2010s, you know, we're going to think it was crazy in, in in early 2021, I think people thought the 2010s, you know, were a little bit extreme. But I think if we go in, but that was also based on the fact like inflation's never going to come back, the world's never really going to change. There's this kind of permanent state of the world that has, you know, dog themed coins becoming, you know, hundred billion dollar asset classes overnight, uh, meme stocks going up ten times in a matter of days, and, and there were like these pockets of. But I think when people look back broadly at it, they're going to say, wait. We had how many trillions of dollars of negative yielding interest rates, negative yielding bonds. We had, um, you know, tech stocks. We had X number of electric vehicle companies, none of which had sales, each of which had a $50 billion market cap. I think they're just going to say like, you know, boy, we thought pets.com and some of the fiber optic companies and extremes of the dot-com crisis. And that now it's, it's, it just looks like child's play. And so I think the view on hedge funds is that we're going to see these kind of like, like bear market rallies, but, but, but they're really, really serious problems that are going to take years to work out. I don't know if they're right or not. I mean, I, I share the view, but it doesn't necessarily mean the market's going to respond the way you think they're going to respond. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but we do see that. So we see very conservative positioning across our portfolios. And uh, on the managed future side, we've been in crash protection mode, you know, for, for months and months now. Are, are there other hedge fund strategies that you're thinking about, that you know about, that you think would work well in sort of a liquid vehicle like an ETF? We haven't found it uh, in terms of what we do. Um, uh, what we do in Europe, which is different from here, is we combine strategies. So we give you back to your point about 
this line item sticks out in a bad period. Um, that's a very, very real client management and commercial issue. In Europe, we tend to combine things like equity long short with managed futures into an integrated package. So if we go through a long winter on the managed futures side, um, the other side will hopefully be doing better and vice versa. Um, and I could see us going in that direction. Uh, there are a couple of precedent products in the US. It's almost like a multi-manager vehicle, but, but with much lower fees. I could see us potentially doing something like that. Um, uh, but, uh, but I don't think, um, I just don't see other hedge fund strategies that are, I mean, I think one of the questions you, you asked early on is, is the big hedge fund categories. Like we think in terms of big categories, equity long short, relative value, we're not going to try to replicate relative value, event driven, could kind of replicate event driven, but it's not, it doesn't, doesn't have any of the kind of fun of event driven and, you know, hearing about corporate changes or merger ARB and then kind of global macro. It's too random. We can't do it. But managed futures is kind of the next big category. We can do that. So we, we, we focus on the two that we think we can do well. Um, given the fact that you, you know, you started your career in a, in a value investing shop, and I know that you're, you know, you follow obviously value investing strategies. Um, and we, as systematic value investors, we know it's it's been, well, up until maybe, like you said, the COVID thing, things changed, but then it kind of has gone a little bit, not dark. I mean, it's done okay but value hasn't like shot the lights out here. Um, well, relative to growth, I guess it has this year. Um, but just, you know, just wanted to kind of pick your brain, get your thoughts on, I guess, you know, your view of quantitative value investing versus hardcore discretionary value investing. And if you have any thoughts, um, you know, on that, and then this idea that, you know, it's changed with intangible assets and, uh, sort of these technology companies and these platform companies and these the value companies sort of reside in the old economy type stocks. I mean, do you have any sort of personal view on, I guess, the outlook for value going forward? Well, I think, so I think, um, so I, the original diagnosis of value by, by Fama um, described a very, very real phenomenon in 1960 through to, 1962 to 1990 that was essentially over by 1990, which was, and, and if you like, and use an example, it's 1975, right? And how do you actually go buy a stock in 1975 if you're a pension plan or somebody else, right? You're, you're, you probably don't have an advisory relationship with somebody. You're, you're calling a broker who's getting paid on the number of shares that you buy. And the, and, and the commissions were fat and that's how they made money. So, in that world, there's an enormous incentive to push hot stocks, right? It's, and so I've used the example of it's 1975 and you're a rich guy sitting on Nantucket and you pick up your rotary phone and you call, you know, the New York office of Goldman Sachs and you ask them, you talk to your broker and you say, you know, I've got some money from the family company to invest. He's not going to tell you about a balance sheet analysis of Bethlehem Steel and that the pension plan liabilities are underfunded and you can buy a dollar for 50 cents. He's going to tell you about Walmart. You know, you, you may have been almost, you know, sir, you may have almost been run over by one of these trucks on uh, on uh, on 90, you know, heading heading toward Boston, and they're growing like weeds, and they're up 30% in the past six months. We think our analysts think it's going to go up even more. I want I want you I want you to participate in it. And so so it was a the structure of the industry I think was a very um, hot dot chase returns industry, and now look at the other side of it. You're Warren Buffett. How do you find those companies in 1975? Right? I mean, you're, you're reading 
probably a five-day-old Wall Street Journal going through, looking at the tickers on the back. You're calling companies. They're mailing you their financial statements. You're doing it without a calculator. There are no computers. There are no databases. So people who were value stock obsessives, who got a serotonin kick out of buying dollars for 50 cents, were kind of odd, right? Those stories about Buffett 12 hours a, a day in his attic, you know, that there are not many people who that's a great day for them. Um, but, and so like Seth, the guy that I worked for, I've always said like, the guy was born a value investor. He's an incredible value investor. He thinks about everything in terms of relative values and prices, et cetera. He thinks in so many different dimensions than, 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 than I would ever think about it. He didn't read a paper about value investing, but, but those stocks that, that were trading at such a discount to book value and could, and could be like that for years, um, uh, um, I think were largely gone by, by 1990. You had LBOs, you had strategic acquirers, et cetera. Then what happened is that value investing changed. Value investing, th there were no cigar butts. So the guys who believe, and I believe in buying things less expensively when you can, it's like the, it's the best thing you can do. In the same way I believe that if you can pay, get the same thing with lower fees, you're gonna do better. I also believe if you can buy the same asset for more cheaply, you're gonna do, do better. But the definition, definition of value changed. It was now about, and, and Tiger Management was interestingly one of the, the companies that carried this, which was value investing was now buying a good company at a reasonably cheap price. And okay, when you're doing that and you don't have you know, all these undiscovered assets on the balance sheet, you start to care about what management thinks, right? The original cigar butts, who cared what management thinks? They've already destroyed all the value they possibly could. They're running out of, uh, running out of ways to destroy value. Um, they're, they, they, have, they have asset value in spite of themselves. Now, value investing was about, well, we want a company who cares about how they reinvest cash. We want a CEO who has stock options and has an incentive to actually figure out how to maximize value. So the definition, and this also came out of the LBO boom. There were guys like me who were using computers to build DCF models to figure out how much KKR would buy that stock for. And so, so value investing changed from an asset-based test to a business value or an intrinsic value test. And some of the guys, like when I worked for Seth, he didn't believe it, right? That wasn't his, his DNA was not a good company. A guy like Julian Robertson believes it entirely. Buffett and slash Munger, I think, started to believe it back in the early 1980s. So, so there was this kind of shift in the value investing community. Um, and then, then I think another thing that happened is that, is that by and large, American business became phenomenally good. You know, when I would, 1994, I would look at a, an industry, 1990, 1990, when I was doing M&A work and look at an industry, you'd have terrible companies sitting alongside great companies. And the pace of competition was very, very slow. And people were hugely critical of things like stock options. Management's gonna get rich, it's, you know, and, and short-termism, and we should all really have economies like Japan and, and, and Germany that, you know, and controlled economies and long-term thinking and all this stuff. Then it was sort of a surprise, like stock options actually got people to focus on making their companies better. And so when Warren Buffett, when they said, when Warren Buffett said he should just buy the S&P 500, and you know, the second sentence that he said was, you've got 500 incredibly motivated guys who are trying to make their companies better every day. Like it's a, the S&P 500 is this living organic, organic thing. So to me, from a systematic versus a, a you know, sort of a, you know, discretionary sort of stock picking perspective, I think it's just, it's deciding where you think the value is, but you've got to make a call, right? You've got to make a call. Like, so for instance, and, 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 and there is a cyclicality to it. 
So you look at a place like Europe, right? If I was a value investor, I'd probably look a lot at Europe because how do you pack more bad news into one continent, right? I mean, it's like, it's, it's underperformed forever, right? At some point, it's gotta, it's gotta come back and we'll all be surprised by it and someone's gonna make a killing on it. Emerging markets went through, I mean, in 2010, who would have thought that I mean, emerging markets went nowhere and US stocks went up 3X or something. I mean, it's just, so, so I think, I think, I think as much as we want to say, you know, this has worked for 70 years and this is going to work for 70 years forward, I, that's a very compelling pitch. I think what's happened with is that we have these great systematic tools, these screening tools we have, but ultimately it's going to come down to a judgment call. You know, where do you think the value is and then how do you use these tools to implement it in a way that's most effective? I think that's an excellent answer, response, overview, sort of historical uh, timeline. We had Professor Lawrence Cunningham on the podcast, and he's written a few, he knows, he knows Buffett and he's written a few books on Buffett. And, you know, it was one of the things uh, that he highlighted and you kind of hit on was, you know, Buffett's ability to change, uh, you know, influenced by Munger and moving from that cigar, but more value, Ben Graham value investing philosophy to the, you know, higher quality waiting for those stocks to come on sale at some point. And he did it probably at a great time when he was buying Coke and American Express and these companies that were ended up being compounding long-term great compounding machines, not necessarily the value stock you buy and it goes up 100% because you know maybe its business isn't as bad, but it, it's not really a long-term compounder um, necessarily. It doesn't turn the business around. So, so I, I so actually, it's interesting about that because I, I was with Buffett in 2016. Um, I went out to, to Omaha and I spent part of a day with him. And I actually think my interpretation has actually made three shifts. Or he's he's had three different things. The first was the uh, was the cigar butts. Then it was Coca Cola, American Express, etc. And and then it was um, it, it was the uh, every ten years the economic storm clouds darken and it rains bars of gold. He he'd always had that side of it. But once he got really big, so if you look at what he did in the GFC, right by buying the railroad and preferred stock here and preferred stock. I mean, he, he was the guy who basically, he was the, the incremental dollar who was waiting on the balls of his feet gleefully for that moment. The problem he has now is everybody learned that lesson. So in 2020, the moment things start to fall apart and we go into lockdown, every private equity firm is out there waiting for that. So, so, so the world has, you know, he does it, he does it 15 years earlier or 10 years earlier than everybody else. Now he's waiting for the moment when the private equity guys and everybody else are waiting for it. And I don't think that's going to happen again. So the question is what, what's his fourth act if there is one and, and it, it'll be something incredible. You know, he'll buy a, you know, he'll buy a small country or something. He'll do, he'll, do, he'll buy sovereign debt, you know, all the sovereign debt of Argentina or something. I mean, he's going to do something wild. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe you could say that the fourth act was like his investment in Apple. So there's maybe a fifth act because, you know, Apple was such, you know, become such a huge part of the portfolio, and he was, and it, it was a value stock essentially. That's true, and maybe, and maybe, and maybe that was, you know, maybe that was the maturation of these tech stocks become value stocks. Anyway, I mean, I just, I think he is such a, he is, um, it, it was cool for a long time to kind of beat up on him, and 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 I just think like. I think it was like 2016, Novi Marx wrote this paper about the quality factor, right? And then AQR wrote something saying, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, we think, uh, um, uh, you know, basically he's like a leveraged mm -hmm. version of the quality factor. He saw the quality factor right. 30 years before these guys, 
Right. Right. He, he, he is the quality yeah. factor. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that's like that's the whole point. And the next thirty years, people are like studying it and figuring it out. It drove up all these asset classes, these things, and they said, "Oh, well, that's why it happened." But that's the whole point. Is it? And, and and AQR did say that in the last paragraph. They're like, "Yeah." And I mean, you know, sort of we, kind of reluctantly tipping their hat to him that you know, my God, he 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 was early. Um, so so he's you know he's he's he, he's iconic and and you know you talk about just the personality. I mean, the energy he brings to it. I mean, he's just, he's just, just bouncing out of his chair. I just think the guy, the guy's it's pretty awesome. You got a chance to, to spend some time with him. That's, that's pretty amazing. Um, this has been great, Andrew. Thank you so much for spending uh, this time with us. We like to ask our guests one final closing question. And that is based on your research and experience in the markets. If you could teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Know thyself. Um, I mean, this is an incredibly hard business. Uh, we are always dealing with with uh, uh, we're always dealing with limited information. We're going to be wrong a lot in what we do, and, and just it's okay. Like make you're going to make mistakes. You're going to try things that don't work, and and but don't turn away from 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 the mistakes. Stare at them. Try to figure why did you do it. If there's one guy to listen to in this, you've got to listen to interviews with Stan Druckenmiller. That guy was obsessed with behavioral finance before it was a thing. Why did he do it? You know, he couldn't resist, and, he, and, he, and he's brutally honest with himself. And, and I think that in this business in particular, when we're dealing with all of these uh, things, it just, it's, it's just a, a, a framework for thinking about how you make decisions about things. And, um, and it's, it's, it's hard to do. Sometimes you discover things about yourself that you wish weren't true, but, um, but, then, but then you can work on it. You know, better to know. Um, if people want to learn more about you, follow your research, um, do you know some uh, due diligence on the investment strategies and, and funds that you have, where can they go to learn more? First, I'm on social media fairly actively, probably more so than than I should be. But I'm on. So please reach out to me over LinkedIn. I'd love to meet all of you over LinkedIn. You'll see the kind of stuff that I post. I'm also now on Twitter. It's Andrew D Beer One on Twitter. Um, and, uh, again, I'm pretty focused in terms of talking about things that are relevant to, to, to what we do, um, and, and, uh, you know, the kind of broader hedge fund industry and topics like that. Um, and then we also have a website, www.dynamicbeta.com. Uh, all the funds that we manage are set up and run by other people. We act as the sub-advisor. So what it'll do is then direct you to, you know, if you're a European investor, it'll direct you to these sites. If you're a U.S. investor, it'll, it'll, it'll direct you here. So, um, uh, listen, Justin, thank you so much for having me on. And, uh, uh, it was, it was a pleasure to be here and, and, uh, thank you, know, you Andrew. Really appreciate appreciate time. Okay. Thanks. Hi guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of excess returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practical quant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.